Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of the Carnism Debunk podcast. I'm joined by a very special guest today who I feel so honored to be speaking to. His name is Alex Hershaft. Alex's story is fascinating. Growing up in a Jewish family, he survived genocide in Nazi-occupied Poland as a child. And in his adulthood, years after escaping the Holocaust, he co-founded Farm Animal Rights Movement, which I believe is the oldest or one of the oldest animal rights organizations in the USA, where he currently lives. Now long into his 80s, Alex remains a vocal and prominent activist for the animals. So Alex, pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, George. Pleasure is mine. So firstly, I just wanted to express why I feel it's so important to have you on the show and speak to you. And that's that I feel we take for granted the chances we have to speak to people who lived throughout one of the, you know, defining periods in human history. And um, speaking from personal experience, my grandfather on my dad's side fought in World War II and took part in the D-Day landings uh, where he was wounded twice that day. Uh, and my grandmother on my dad's side survived the Blitz in London. Uh, and one of my regrets now that I'm an adult and they've long passed away is not speaking to them enough about it when they were around when I was a kid. Um, and I truly wish that I could have spoken more to people who have been affected by World War II. And so to have someone on today who is not only a fellow animal rights activist, but also who survived the Holocaust as a child is truly special. So I wanted to start off by asking you, you know, do you agree with what I've just said there? And if so, just how important is it that we remember and talk about this part of human history? Well, it's uh, it's very important uh, because uh, uh, you know as the saying goes, if we don't remember history, we're condemned to repeat it. Uh, we one of the secrets to our success as a civilization is our ability to record history and to learn from it. And uh, the lesson that we can learn from the Holocaust is uh, the, the excesses, uh, the potential excesses of oppression. And of course, I have made the link between uh, the oppression of uh, my people and the oppression uh, that we uh, apply to animals, uh, especially animals raised for food. Yeah. I, and I wanted to start off there with your story and, and sort of develop onto how you eventually went on to make that connection. Um, so you survived what was called, I believe, the Warsaw Ghetto. Is that correct? Yes. Tell us what is the Warsaw Ghetto and how old you were and what happened and how you escaped. Um, I was five years old when the Nazi armies invaded Poland on September 1st of uh, 1939. And uh, about several months after the invasion, all Jews in the greater Warsaw area were ordered to move into the Jewish section of Warsaw. So most had to move in with strangers. Uh, we were fortunate in that my mother's parents had a large apartment in the Jewish section. So we were able to move in with them. And shortly after the move, we saw little pieces of wall going up here and there. And eventually, about a year after the invasion in the fall of uh, uh, 1940, uh, the ghetto was closed in with uh, uh, brick walls and barbed wire. And it became the infamous Warsaw Ghetto, which turned out to be a concentration camp to hold people until the guest chambers were ready to, for the final liquidation. And if you had not have escaped the Warsaw Ghetto, which camp would you and your family have been sent to? Treblinka. Treblinka. That's... Yeah, all, all the Warsaw Jews uh, ended up, uh, the ones who did not escape ended up in the guest chambers of Treblinka. In fact, uh, a, a large number, uh, everybody knows about Auschwitz. And of course, Auschwitz was the death camp for about 1.2 or so million people, mostly Jews. But the second largest and very close in, in size was Treblinka, which was northeast of Warsaw. And uh, that's, that's where most of my family ended up. 
So you have family members, obviously, who were murdered in, in the Holocaust. How, how, how many family members and other people that you knew did, did this happen to? Well, altogether, uh, uh, approximately 450,000 Jews uh, were in the Warsaw Ghetto at the time that it was closed in. And subsequently, additional Jews from other areas near Warsaw were sent to the Warsaw Ghetto. So altogether, I think the estimates are around 450,000. Mm -hmm. Now, not all perished in Treblinka, uh, but uh, yeah, about 100,000 or so, maybe, maybe less, maybe 80,000 died before the liquidation of uh, hunger and disease. Typhus was a major epidemic in mm -hmm. the Warsaw Ghetto, which uh, uh, killed a number of people. It's very interesting what you said about the Warsaw Ghetto, about this was a concentration camp in itself. So they fenced you in with, with barbed wire and stuff like that. What sort of things did you see there? What were some particularly, what were some memories that stick out in your mind when you think of the Warsaw Ghetto? Um, not a lot of memories because uh, we stayed mostly home because it was dangerous to go out. Mm -hmm. uh, partly because of the epidemic and partly because uh, you could get shot. So we stayed pretty much home, but there were some activities. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was an orphanage. There was some attempts at schools. Uh, there were some cultural activities, but very limited. There, there were some street markets where people were trading uh, goods for food. Food was a major issue in the ghetto. There wasn't enough food. Did you sort of see any kind of connection between how your life was luckily spared somehow? You managed to escape, yet others died. And the connection between that and things like farm animal liberations and the fact that many animals, many billions of animals are forced into gas chambers every year, yet there are some lucky ones who survive. Did you see any connection between that sort of thing? Um, no, not really. Uh, we, the, the reason that we survived was mostly because my grandparents had some jewelry. Yeah. And uh, we were able to bribe the guards and uh, get out. And my grandparents didn't make it, but they basically sacrificed whatever they had so that my parents and I could escape. Yeah. So talk to me about the links you eventually did see between the persecution of Jews and what's happening to farmed animals, because this is something I've read you know, a lot about you and stuff. And I, I think it's I'd love to hear firsthand from you what it was specifically that happened to you or whatever it was that you saw that led you on eventually to a journey of becoming vegan sure well that's a kind of a an extended journey mm -hmm. so it uh, uh, see i arrived in the united states in 1951 and uh, uh, i was alone and uh, didn't have any means of support so I did a lot of different jobs and uh, went to school, uh, got my bachelor's degree and eventually my PhD. Uh, but for, for the first few years, it was mostly a, a battle for survival and trying to get myself uh, in, in some kind of financial situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, once I was uh, pretty well settled, uh, uh, I started thinking about what happened and uh, uh, survivor's guilt kicked in. Mm -hmm. And I started uh, wondering about such questions as why was I spared when so many people were not? And uh, how can I repay my debt? to society, and what lessons can we learn from this terrible tragedy that just took place? And uh, uh, I pondered with this, those questions for a long time, didn't really have an answer. Uh, but in 1972, 
I uh, went to work for a Washington consulting firm, environmental consulting firm. And they sent me to a slaughterhouse in the Midwest to conduct the wastewater inventory. And uh, I was walking around with my notebook taking notes. And I turned a corner and I came across these piles of body parts, you know, hooves and hearts and heads and legs. And uh, I, I mean, I, I knew that I was in a slaughterhouse, but that was kind of an abstract concept. But know, knowing that vaguely and, and seeing the results of that process were, was quite different. And the other thing that happened is I got immediate flashbacks to the piles of human body parts I saw when I visited Auschwitz after the war you know, piles of human hair and uh, suitcases and shoes and glasses. So, so the, the immediate thought was, uh, is there some connection between what we're doing to the animals and what the Nazis did to us? And, uh, and I said, well, that couldn't possibly be because Germany was such a horrible place and Nazism was such a horrible uh, regime and here I am in this beautiful new country with these uh, wonderful values and the Bill of Rights and there couldn't possibly be a connection. So I said, you know, obviously I'm a scientist so I need to do some research and uh, I'm sure there, if I do enough research that everything will be explained. Well, I did more research, and the more research I did, the worse things got, because the more I saw the parallels between what the Nazis did to us and what we're doing to the animals, uh, the herding of the victims, the use of cattle cars to transport our people to the gas chambers, the housing in uh, wood crates, uh, the mistreatment to make the killing more tolerable, the secrecy, uh, just uh, everything about it was had, had such dramatic similarities that uh, instead of feeling better, I was feeling worse and worse. And I couldn't share this with anyone because uh, I was afraid that they would commit me because at that time that this was in 1972 and nobody else was talking about it and it was it was inconceivable i mean it was offensive it was yeah it was just unacceptable so i kept it to myself and 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 i was very very distressed and uncomfortable and then i came across the writings of isaac bashevis singer who, and uh, one of his characters basically said that to the animals, all men are Nazis, and for the animals, life is a, a, an eternal Treblinka. And I said, my God, here's one other person, and no less than a Nobel laureate, who shares my views. <laughs> so. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe there is some some rationale, some reason to 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 these thoughts that have been plaguing me. Uh, so that's uh, that's where I was. Uh, uh, I had uh, by then I had already been vegetarian and became vegetarian in 1961 uh, uh, during a trip to Israel. Uh, so in uh, uh, a couple years later, in 1975, I went to the World Vegetarian Congress because I was still a closet vegetarian at that point. I still didn't know any other vegetarians and I didn't share my views with anyone else. Uh, so I just wanted to know <laughs> what other vegetarians looked like. Mm. <laughs> Were they not cases? Were they strange? <laughs> Were they, you know, 
And, uh, you know, could I come out of the closet finally? <laughs> and, uh, and I went there and, and I was, it was, it was basically a life-changing experience. It was, uh, it was like being born again. I mean, there were 1500 people from all nations of the world, all kinds of dress, all kinds of economic stations, different genders, different ages. And the only thing they all had in common is that they didn't eat animals. Yeah. And uh, I just, I, like I said, I, I just felt born again. And I, I decided right then and there that I just wanted to spend the rest of my life uh, fighting all oppression, but starting primarily with the oppression of animals for food. So, I mean, it's something very powerful that you said a moment ago because you yourself have survived a holocaust yet it's so it's considered so controversial to draw similarities between these two different oppressions that even you as a holocaust survivor felt that you could not speak out and say hang on guys this is similar this is what we're doing now this is exactly how you felt even though you had been through it you felt that people would have condemned even you for making that those analogies yeah i still feel that way to some extent uh, because when you when you just mention a comparison people immediately start comparing victims which is the least comparable the least relevant aspect of the comparison because the oppressor doesn't really care who the victims are the only requirements of a victim is that they have to be vulnerable and they have to be identifiable in some manner. I mean, look at all the other genocides that followed. I mean, the, the victims were uh, all kinds, you know, there were people with the same skin colors, people with, of the same religion, different religion. Uh, it just doesn't seem to matter. It's uh, uh, the animals are so convenient because they're so vulnerable. So, but uh, but the oppression, the the evil of oppression is not about the victims, and it's a big mistake to focus on the victims. And I'll give you some examples. So, if you look at all the organizations, uh, the social justice movements, all the organizations that are fighting against oppression. Every one of them is totally focused on a certain victim class, whether it's women or black people or immigrants or the handicapped or gay, they're all focused on, on, on their class of victims and they will not, they will not share their concern with any other class. So what this does basically, it, uh, it fractures the social justice movement. Uh, instead of people uniting and all confronting oppression at the same time, they are totally focused on very specific victims. And uh, I think that it's unlikely that we will end oppression by being fractured like that so what would you say is is a is the better way to end oppression if not focusing on who the victims are right uh, we need to we need to focus on the causes of oppression so the uh, there are a number of causes uh, of reasons why people become oppressors uh, on a very elementary level, which is the school bully, uh, that is, uh, that's usually a family situation. It's usually a child that is being oppressed or bullied by his parents or his peers. And he is basically trying to build up his self-respect and self-confidence by bullying others. In, uh, in larger settings, uh, oppression is sometimes used uh, uh, to, uh, to consolidate power. That, that was the case, for example, in uh, Nazi Germany. 
uh, Hitler was looking for consolidating his power among Germans and he found it most useful by playing on the, uh, uh, on the general sentiment of, of defeat and depression that the Germans felt after World War I. And uh, he basically said, well, this is all the fault of the Jews. And uh, by focusing the general sentiment of the German people on one segment of the population, he was able to consolidate his power. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the remedies against oppression is we basically, everyone has to uh, assert their own principles of uh, opposing oppression uh, on an individual level where, you know, we sometimes say it can't happen here because we have powerful institutions like the courts, like uh, the social justice organizations. But the fact is that the institutions are only as strong as the people who make up those institutions. And uh, I mean, just, uh, just recently we had this, uh, just a few weeks ago, it was discovered that, uh, that Trump was almost able to overturn the election. But if, <laughs> I mean, there were just these, these two guys at the Department of Justice who, who refused to go along. And that's basically, that's what saved the election. If if they yeah. had if they had caved, uh, Trump, uh, Trump would have installed his own person there, who would have declared that the election was suspect, that there were a number of irregularities, and then the the key states of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Georgia, and Arizona would have. Uh, which all have Republican legislatures would have been told to appoint their own electors. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I just dread to think of the mm -hmm. consequences of, of this, what this would have not, not only for the next four years, but also for the future of our country, which is, prides itself so much on, on law and order. Uh, the consequences if just these two guys had caved in. <laughs> now, I know you said you don't like to compare specifically victims, but do you find there are similarities or, and what similarities, if so, do you see specifically between anti-Semitism and speciesism as systems of oppression? Uh, I don't really know how to answer that. Uh, I... Uh, uh, it's uh, it's done for entirely different reasons. So, uh, uh, well, the the oppression of animals is obviously done for financial gain. Uh, that is not usually the reason for anti-Semitism. So, yeah, I don't really see the parallels. There was something you said about um, when we when we pet a dog but then we kill a pig. There was something that you said, um, there was a comparison you made there that was, I, I thought was powerful. Do you remember you saying something along those lines? Uh, yeah, oh, well, I was talking about the power of social norms. Yeah. Which are, can be very arbitrary and uh, yeah. And uh, our social norms basically say that, well, the, <clears throat> they start with, they start in our childhood. I mean, a, a four-year-old is told by his parents that uh, the dog on his couch is to be cherished and fed and taken out for walks. And the pig on his plate is to be abused and uh, murdered and cut into little pieces and consumed as food. And this is the first lesson that a child gets that society allows such extreme forms of discrimination between two sentient beings that are 
basically very alike. And, yeah. uh, and that's basically the seed. So that, that's, what, that's what gives the child the idea that discrimination, which is the basis of oppression, that discrimination is possible and, and, and sanctioned in society. Yeah. So would you say that when we're taught then as child that there's a moral difference between certain species of animals that can actually lead to discriminatory behavior later in life about well, human groups? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The only, the only, the only way to deal with oppression is to, is to say that, yeah, that, that everybody is entitled to protection, that, that that there are no disqualification there there is nothing that a sentient being can be or look like or sound like or yeah. feel like that entitles anybody to oppress them there's another thing there's there's been a little bit of um it's been a bit of a talking point in the movement recently that i wanted to hear your opinion on actually because I, I wonder how you would think about this is the idea of hatred do you think that what we're doing to animals and stuff for food and clothing and so on do you think it's a form of hatred or would you say it's something else like because uh, that's obviously another because obviously we have all these different systems of oppression but i was wondering if you think hatred in any way motivates what humans are doing to animals i do not i think it's uh... It's basically a form of cognitive dissonance, uh, which fits in with what I was talking about, social norms. Mm -hmm. uh, people uh, are, social norms basically supersede our personal uh, moral norms. In other words, uh, we are willing to do things that we find morally unacceptable because society sanctions them. And uh, our oppression of animals is an excellent example of that. People who subsidize the abuse and killing of animals for food at the supermarket would never perform these acts themselves. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they, they're in total agreement with us ethically mm -hmm. as far as animal abuse is concerned, but because social norms sanction this activity, they are willing to participate. Yeah, because the reason I I've been thinking that it could actually be considered a form of hatred is because of such huge not only the ma massive indifference to these animals being brutally murdered, which you could consider as a form of hatred perhaps, but also the idea of how we sort of demonize certain animals. Like we say, you know, you disgusting pig and this kind of thing when we insult someone. I do see like a similarity, certainly in that regard, with regards to hatred, the idea, and, and again, this idea that we're superior and this group is inferior to us, which has always been the, this idea that we have about animals and we have dominion over them and this sort of nonsense like would you say those things are forms of hatred or not yeah uh, so the, yeah you bring up an interesting point uh one of the requirements for oppression is uh, uh is you you have to find some way of diminish of diminishing the moral worth of the victim Mm -hmm. So very frequently, the way that's done with human victims is by uh, comparing them with animals, because animals are so universally oppressed. People are kind of, uh, people throughout the world have kind of accepted the notion that animals uh, are legitimate victims of oppression. So if you can in some way compare your next victim to an animal, uh, you have basically scored a moral point with the public opinion. So yeah, so this is, this, this is very common to calling potential victims with animal names, a pig or a cockroach or a snake or so forth. Yeah, I wrote uh, I wrote an entire blog essay mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and the use of language to victimize animals. Yeah, I'm wondering also, because I know you've talked about Treblinka earlier and you mentioned eternal Treblinka as well, as said by um, Bashiva Singer, was it, that you mentioned? Um, and I was wondering well, if you've... Well, eternal Treblinka is a book by Charles Patterson. Yes, yes. Which uh, talks about these matters and quotes me extensively. Uh, no, the mention of Treblinka was by Isaac Bashiva Singer. Yes. Who, yeah, and then the the book obviously Eternal Treblinka was based off that quote, and I, I was wondering if you've read Eternal Treblinka. Yeah, sure. Yeah, what what did you think of the book, and what what powerful things specifically do you think that it says in the book, and that we can learn from that book? Well, pretty much the views that I've been espousing here. Yeah. Uh, that uh, yeah, that the commonality of oppression between was done to the Jews and what we're doing to the animals. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of talk to me now, um, just moving on about, about farm animal rights movement. Tell me sort of the work that you've been doing with farm animal rights movement since it was set up in the 70s, I believe, and sort of how that's progressed a long time. Sure. Yeah. So we actually were the first animal rights organization, as you mentioned, well, the introduction uh, or at least as far as farm animals are concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, the first 20 years of our movement were entirely devoted to fighting vivisection. Uh, farm animals were not on anybody's radar until the middle 90s mm -hmm. when, uh, when Bruce Friedrich was hired by PETA to specifically deal with farm animal issues. That's when that's when I got, got some support in, in, in our work. Uh, so uh, what we were doing is, uh, well, we were doing a lot of things that we wouldn't do today. For example, we started our very first campaign was the Vilben campaign. And uh, what uh, we were basically going around to French and Italian restaurants and showing them pictures of how uh, dairy calves are raised for veal in wood crates uh, with chains around their neck. And, uh, and with the kind of reactions we were getting was, oh, this is horrible. Uh, tell us how we can get humanely raised uh, veal. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. That's when we realized that we were we were in the wrong campaign yeah so we went on to uh, you know pretty early on so 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 back then there, there wasn't this split between the animal welfare people and the animal rights people okay but that's that's when i realized that there were sort of two ways of pursuing this yeah and, and interestingly enough, another person that I knew, uh, his name is Bob Brown, started an organization right about a year after Farm, which did exactly that. It provided humanely raised animals to restaurants. Uh, yeah. So then we, uh, we went on to, shortly after that, we launched World Day for Farm Animals and the Great American Meat Out. And uh, we basically focused on promoting veganism after that. Uh, we, our biggest campaign was probably the 10 Billion Lives, which started in 2011, where we had two vans going around to college campuses and uh, the rock concerts, uh, mostly trying to hit up uh, kids in their, from their mid-teens to early 20s, uh, showing them videos of uh, animal abuse and asking them to commit to uh, vegan, a certain number of vegan days per week. Yeah, we did that for about 10 years, from about 2011 to 2018. 
Yeah, mostly, mostly be, uh, well, we, another campaign that, that was very popular was letters to the editor. <clears throat> we wrote letters to about a thousand newspapers around the country under different people's names uh, about once a, once a month or so. Uh, 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 mostly playing off of national holidays or news developments and bringing in a vegan angle. Yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to speak to you about as well, because I was really interested to see you write this, because we use the same terminology here, is that you mentioned, I, I saw recently somewhere, you wrote that the woke cult is impacting the modern vegan movement. Can you explain what you sort of mean by that and how, how you see this happening? Well, I have uh, since learned that it's not just a vegan movement, that it's, <laughs> that it's a cult that's affecting all social justice movements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I recently, yeah, I recently started following uh, Sam Harris and uh, Douglas Murray, and uh, they, they talk about this extensively in their podcasts. But yeah, it's, uh, it's basically a trend that, uh, that's been growing like cancer uh, yeah. in, in the West, in, in apparently just English-speaking societies for some reason. <laughs> Not sure why that is. Yeah, it, it's weird. It, it seems to come from these sort of coastal US cities, the, the, the universities there now, which appear to be these indoctrination centers, essentially, the, the universities they have now in America. And they're sort of teaching everyone that they're victims and they're oppressed if they're not white males kind of thing. And they're teaching everyone that you know white males sort of get handed everything to them in life and everyone else is kind of a victim and you must always be mindful of your privilege and recognize your privilege and that everything now is fascism and stuff and I'm, I, I find it interesting because you're someone who lived through literal fascism and luckily escaped it and what do you think now when you see everything being referred to as fascism by these people oh, oh, none none of what i went through and what i achieved matters the only thing that the my, my sole identity right now in the eyes of the woke called is that i'm a white male and obviously with privilege <laughs> and, uh, there, and therefore <laughs> probably racist and sexist yeah and these but, people wouldn't know real hardship no. if it bit them in the ass basically yeah but uh, yeah i actually wrote several essays in uh, the vegan blog about this uh, three essays yeah uh, so yeah my my views are pretty well explained <laughs> but so, uh, but i find i find that uh, sam harris and uh, Doug Murray did do a very good job of talking about this. Sam Harris more from, from the American standpoint and Doug Murray, of course, is British. Mm -hmm. So he talks about it mostly in the madness of crowds. I've read that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what do you think of, um, because, you know, it, it's coming mainly from the intersectionals within the vegan movement, obviously this woke culture. What do you think about their criticism of the term animal holocaust? Because this is a term I use a lot. We obviously spoke earlier just before the podcast about, you know, James Aspie got a, a lot of heat for saying this. Do you think that they do, do you think it is helpful to call it the animal holocaust? I mean, we can both agree that it is by definition a holocaust that's happening to animals but do you think that there we should use this term or there's anything wrong with it uh, it requires too much explanation uh, we it, it's not just about animal holocaust it's it's about how we present ourselves to the general public uh, uh, i think it's in in vegan advocacy in animal rights advocacy it's it's very important to talk to people uh, in terms that they can understand and that they're comfortable with. Uh, 
I don't think it's helpful to shock people. And uh, when you talk about animal holocaust, the first thing that comes to their mind is that we're comparing Jews and pigs. And uh, that's an immediate turnoff. And it, it requires about a half hour of explanation. And uh, very seldom do we have the opportunity to provide that half hour of explanation. Do you think it's quicker to just say, you know, let's just say something to them that they will immediately not sort of get defensive at and they can just sort of maybe more connect with kind of thing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think people have a natural affinity towards animals because if you think about it from their earliest memories, you know, when they were still in their crib, the first toys they played with were animal toys. Uh, the first uh, stories that got them personally involved in emotionally were stories of animals. And then uh, when they were, uh, when they came out of the crib and they were able to walk around and go to school, their best friend was the family dog who gave them unconditional love, even when their schoolmates or their, their own siblings wouldn't. So there were, people have a natural affinity for animal and what we need to do is bring it out. And uh, then uh, the, the next obstacle we face is the social norm that basically say that animals are food. And at that point we, we say to them, well, but you know, you have, you, you're, you, you can make your own decisions. You don't have to follow the social norm, especially now that plant-based uh, meats and milks and the cheeses and ice creams are so widely available. Uh, you now can make your own choices with very little personal pain and, in fact, a lot of personal gain. So that's the approach I favor, is to remind them of the natural affinity for animals and then show them the plant-based foods. Do you take the position very much that we're actually born naturally to want to, to care for animals, but then we're sort of brainwashed into seeing them as lesser or inferior and not worthy of moral consideration. Yeah, yeah. And this, I guess, did coming to that realization, um, did, did you get any kind of, did you see any kind of connections between that and what happened to the Jews in World War II? Do you think, for example, that people grow up naturally to actually love their fellow human beings but then they're brainwashed or do you see that as different well it's a little different see uh in europe uh, anti-semitism was rampant so people people don't don't understand i mean there is there is no such there there, there is no such sentiment in this country towards anyone today towards any group, yeah. uh, you, it, it's difficult for people to imagine what anti-Semitism was like in Europe. It was, uh, it, it, uh, uh, any, any resentment, it wasn't just Germany, any resentment that anybody had uh, was totally focused on Jews. I mean, Jews were blamed for everything. And, 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 and if somebody did not have resentment, if somebody was well off financially and health-wise and life-wise, then, uh, then, then they would bring up the issue that, that Jews killed Christ, okay? Mm -hmm. So there was that on top of everything else. Uh, so the, the sentiments that, uh, that we talk about today against uh, blacks or immigrants or Latin Americans, I mean, they're not at all comparable with what anti-Semitism was like in Europe. Uh, and, uh, and the other thing was that, so, so, so there, are two, there are at least two, two reasons for the difference. 
One was that the that it was okay to hate Jews, you know, it was not nobody. I mean, there were a there were a few elites, you know, like my parents, for example, were hanging out with Poles who were educated and who were not discriminating. You know, they didn't mind my parents being Jewish, but they were a tiny minority. Uh, so so it was considered okay. To, to resent and hate Jews. And the other thing is Jews were the only minority. So in this country, you have a choice, you know, who to hate. You can, you know, you have an, a number of minority groups. You, <laughs> you, you can select who you resent, but in Europe, it was just the Jews. So, all the all the resentments were focused on, on us. Yeah, because obviously when you look at the Holocaust, it was mainly Jews that they killed, but they did kill obviously, um, gypsies. you know, gypsies and a few, a few of the mentally disabled and gay yeah. people, right? But the yeah. focus was mainly on the Jews kind of thing. Yeah. Why, why was that specifically that they focused mainly on the Jews and not, they didn't murder as many people from other groups. Well, there were no other groups because people were in sort of because maybe gay people were in the closet kind of thing, yeah, or oh, was yeah. it gay people were totally in the closet? Yeah. yeah, and the gypsies were very few. I mean, okay, I see what you're saying. And coming back now, just to um, stuff about the modern vegan movement and stuff, what other problems do you see with the modern animal rights movement, if any, apart from sort of the woke culture? impacting i think that's the biggest and yeah. uh, I, I and uh, you know i've kind of wondered about the reasons for it and uh, uh, th there were some legitimate reasons i think originally back in the in uh, 2017 uh, when uh, when the me too movement kicked in uh, some women felt that uh, that they were denied positions of responsibility in organizations, and uh, so there was that. But uh, the fact remains that uh, most animal organizations were founded by men, very few were founded by women. And the fact remains that in the wake of the Me Too movement, today almost all animal organizations in the United States are run by women. Uh, only two, uh, I think, are run by men, Farm and the Humane League. Uh, so the, 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 there has been a, a, a huge shift, uh, hopefully for the better, but that remains to be seen. But uh, once, once that got settled, then, uh, then uh, people realized that they, that they could seize power by accusing people of being sexist and racist, because uh, you know, obviously, people in the animal rights movement are sensitive to these issues. So, uh, so then, uh, then it came came up with issues, uh, any issues of power. So, for example, in my own case, it was a matter of taking over the conference, which was. Uh, which I, I launched back in 1981, and which uh, was really the only opportunity for the entire movement to come together and to network and to inspire each other. And, uh, uh, and in 2018, uh, there was an attempt to take that conference away from me, uh, which was partially successful. And, uh, and uh, my, uh, my assistant ended up running it for two years, mm -hmm. and then uh, and then uh, the epidemic came, and uh, and uh, the conference had to be cancelled in in last year, and then this year we tried to resurrect it again, and again uh, they brought up uh, uh, the, there was an attack on me personally, and. Uh, we had to scrap the conference again. So you know, it's it's it was it was really about seizing power. 
Yeah, I was actually going to be speaking at that, I think, digitally, doing like a digital talk. And then yeah. the next thing I know, it gets scrapped because of uh, because of controversy and, and people attacking you for no reason, basically. Or was it false rumours or something like that about you? Uh, yeah, it was uh, an accusation that was levelled against me by a former tenant and employee. Yeah. Okay. So this is... So, you know, it, it's... It's not just something that's impacting wider society here. This is something that's really shutting down, you know, important things in the animal rights movement. I think, you know, how helpful could that conference have been? And yet it got shut down by just a few people who said, you know, this can't, this shouldn't go ahead because of X reason. And then someone actually listening to them and, and you know, bending the knee, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, so it was launched by uh, by a few people, mainly Carol Adams, the author. Uh, but uh, but she couldn't have done it by herself. I mean, the reason that that her uh, that her power coup succeeded was because uh, the speakers, the prospective speakers, were willing to go along. Yeah. And uh, it got to the point where every time we got a speaker to agree to speak and we published the name, <laughs> a few days later, <laughs> they would contact us and withdraw. And it got to the point where uh, uh, I, I, was still, I, mean, I was still willing to go ahead because we had people like yourself uh, from outside the country who were willing to speak remotely. But uh, our new executive director, Eric Lindstrom, just felt too, too oppressed and depressed by what was going on where he just decided to shut it down. Yeah. So Alex, it's been great to have you on. I just want to ask you one final question before we end there. Um, I was going to ask you lastly, what lessons can we learn from the Holocaust and how does this relate to humanity's relationship with non-human animals? Well, the lesson is really not just for animals. It's the lesson for uh, how we relate to other sentient beings in, in general. And that is, uh, yeah, it's up to every individual. Every individual has to stand up to anybody who's trying to bully or oppress somebody else it's it's not up to the supreme court it's not up to <clears throat> any institution it's up to every individual and uh, yeah personal responsibility right that's a key part of being vegan because a lot of people when you say why aren't you vegan if you think this is an injustice, what's happening to animals, they say, well, I can't make a difference. Oh, well, everyone else is doing it, that kind of thing. But when really the mentality should be, it doesn't matter if everyone else is doing this, I need to stop my participation in this. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show today, Alex. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time.